Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Hello and welcome to Asia Tech Podcast Stories. My name is Graham Brown. Today we're going mobile. We're going to talk a little bit about augmented reality and tech in Southeast Asia. To do that, I'm joined by a Danish entrepreneur who came to Southeast Asia in 2009 by the name of Jakob Lickegaard. By the way, did I get your second name right? We didn't talk about that. Is that correct? Lickegaard? That was very good. All right, yeah. thank you. It's not the easiest to pronounce, right? <laughs> okay, so let's give some background to you, Jakob. You're the founder of Liquor Studios, which is a privately held studio creating augmented reality experiences. Prior to that, you, well, from your Bangkok base, you built and sold two companies, PlayLab and Page Modo, the first of which had a complement of 100 people and 28 million players. So we're going to talk about building and selling tech startups. We're going to talk about life in Thailand and also augmented reality, everything else in between. Jakob, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And thank you for the great intro. I Excellent. couldn't have done it better myself. <laughs> well, I just worked with what's out there about you. There's a lot written about you, obviously, and a lot that you've published and shared into the world. And you have a great story, which we want to go into today and share with the listeners, because, you know, it's not a, a straightforward story. It's not like you went to Stanford, did the computer engineering degree and walked out into the accelerator program, you know, got five Yeah, I, I probably did more of the opposite. Exactly. So that's my kind of entrepreneur, right? We love those kind of entrepreneurs. So we're going to talk about that, that whole story. You, you swam upstream for a big portion of your career, right? So why did you do that? But let's start with Liquor Studios first, so people understand what your day job, if I can use that word, so to speak, is. What do you do there? Sure. Um, like at Liquor Studios, we create augmented reality experiences. Uh, at the moment, due to hardware specifications, of course, most of them are based on mobile handsets. Uh, here, the first experiences we based on AR kit from Google, which is, uh, sorry, AR kit from Apple, which was launched a few months ago at WWDC. Uh, we've all had a heavy interest in augmented reality for the last few years, but the technology just haven't really been there. Mm. Uh, so, Lego Studios was started, I think, one and a half month ago, uh, just because we could see that the technology is finally there. The stuff that we've been dreaming about the last five, ten years and seeing some prototypes off is something that we can finally put in the hands of other people, uh, even including my mom. <laughs> wow. Well, that's the real test, isn't it? When you talk about the hype curve, when you know your mom can use it and understand what it is. Well, what's the technology that's come about in the last, for those that don't understand, I mean, let's sort of just do a 101 about augmented reality first. Yeah. You know, what are, can I ask just the most stupid question? What exactly is it? And what has changed in the last well, even one and a half months or six months that has made yep. it more of a thing than it was before. Sure. So augmented reality uh, that you have seen before, you have seen it the last five years plus, I think I saw the earliest demos from. It's something where you put up a device, let's say your phone, you point it with the camera open and you can make a small figure appear in front of you on your living room floor. Mm -hmm. uh, you can also make this... Uh, this figure hide in the floor or run around around you. But the point is that you're augmented or mixing reality, mixing real reality with virtual reality. Not to be mixed with virtual reality headsets because that's where you are in a full experience. 
where augmented reality, you actually have the real world around you. Of right. course, looking into the future on a small glimpse, this will be perfect to have something that is implemented into your actual eyeglasses where you can walk around in the world and both play games and see information that other people without these glasses can't see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to give a quick roundup of what happened the last few years, the early demos that has been there, there were tools like Vuforia, uh and uh, Wikitude and other plugins that would make it possible to show these uh, AR demos, but you needed to have perfect lighting conditions. Uh, they were very lacky. They were not really consumer friendly. So what changed all of that was when in a few months ago at the WWDC at Apple where they launched the AR kit uh, because AR kit was like the a major step in the right direction where suddenly a, uh, augmented reality was no longer just uh, a small demo. It was something that would be able to be pushed out to three, four hundred million devices that are already in the market, which is, of course, a big enough market for us to act on and actually build an entire business on. Mm. So ARKit and it is essentially software, right, rather than hardware. Is that right? So I'm trying to explain exactly. it for someone. Okay. Um, so before, I actually, before that was actually yeah. hardware. I mean, when you talked about augmented reality, it was mainly these small, well, not small, but very niche hardware type applications, right? Yeah, there were some where you could put, for example, a QR code on your table and your phone mm-hmm. or your computer could then display a small figure on top of that QR code. Mm-hmm. Uh, then it transformed into Google Tango and Google were ahead on this game for a long time where they had built specific devices that would have two cameras, a laser sensor, IR sensor, etc., to fully make sure uh, you can put it in a room and it knows exactly where the floors, where the tables, where the walls are, and you can make a full augmented reality experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everybody has thought for a long time that none of this would happen before the handset manufacturers start implementing all this expensive hardware into their phones. Uh, but of course, what changed all of that was when Apple launched a pure software fix to iPhone S, S, 6S, 7, and uh, upcoming devices, uh, where you suddenly have an install base of several hundred million people right. uh, instead. Yeah, and this is a fascinating area. So, so people understand, and I think this is important that people don't get confused, is that you know, people are probably very familiar with, well, the name virtual reality. And that would that be sort of what people understand when they see like the Oculus Rift, the glasses, you know, people sort of fumbling around in a room with these sort of headsets on. Whereas what you're doing is essentially on the smartphone. And it's, you know, exactly right. Augmenting really means to add value to reality, right? So you're, you're looking through the smartphone camera, and they're looking at the screen on the other side and something is in that world which doesn't exist, but the smartphone puts it there, right? Exactly. And just to put it into perspective, I think uh, like Sony's VR headset, I think they passed a million devices. Mm. And if you combine Oculus and ACC, they're like around a million devices as well. Right. So let's just say with all devices in the world of VR headsets, uh, there are maybe less than 5 million devices out there Mm -hmm. uh, with no shared platform, no shared technology. Uh, Apple will, when they launch on iOS 11, it's estimated to be 380 million devices that just from one day to the other suddenly can start having uh, AI experience. 
Uh, and we also just had Google launching their AR Core, uh, which I expected to be around 100 million devices by the winter, they say. Mm-hmm. So you're practically looking at four, 500, like half a billion devices that will be AR ready and capable within the next few months. Mm-hmm. So you create augmented reality experiences. What are the typical applications for that so people can understand what what am i likely to be using the next couple of years that's going to be augmented reality sure uh the first example that was on the market and the first one that really grabbed attention is uh is 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 a game like pokemon go Uh, that augmented reality experience was completely fake Uh, faked off it was not based on any of this technology there is it was basically just a character that was randomly based uh, somewhere in your screen Uh, but it was something that at least gets the idea into people's head of having a virtual object inside the real world Mm. Uh, so some of the common applications and demos that you can see online are you can for example measure your entire room you can have uh, you can have small pets like Tamagotchis follow you where you can pull up your phone and suddenly you have a pet dog next to you that you have to remember to feed. Um, and you can have all types of stuff appearing out of the floor. Uh, like, for example, IKEA have shown several demos where mm. you come into your new bought apartment and you look around, you take up your phone and then you, from the IKEA app, place all the furniture uh, from their selection in your house and when you like how it looks then you just order it all and it gets delivered and placed exactly where you put it in the AR experience. What about um, for example on, on a very basic level it, it, you know Google Translate has the I suppose it's kind of an AR experience in that doesn't it where you can hold it up and translate signs, signs would that be sort of very basic entry level AR so people can understand it what they may have been using already? Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a good example where you can actually see text on the wall, which is Spanish, and I can get it shown in Danish, and you can get it shown in English. Right. Uh, the same with, of course, now we go more futuristic, but we can basically in the future go into the same room, and you see different pictures on the wall than I do. Right. And, and I see everything in my local language, you see everything in your local language. Hmm. Uh, it's more about making sure that you have of course, the reality, and then you have a personalized version of that that will be shown to you. So you're from essentially a, a mobile background, and, and a big part of what you did was games. So yeah. I know you, you've kind of mentioned, you've given us a taste of the kind of things that are pop- possible. I mean, you mentioned Tamagotchi type things. You mentioned like Pokemon Go as, as like a you know a, an insight into what may be possible where, where are we now with games and augmented reality what's kind of interesting because I, I guess the challenge is it's like the first mobile games they were simply you know old-fashioned games you know we're going back to like i don't know you know asteroids and stuff like that on mobile yeah. phones or, or snake whatever it was whereas you know the games that really were successful down the line were a little bit different right so where are we now with ar games are they simply games from the mobile era now with just a little bit more real estate or are people thinking about this differently so of course the first games that you will see over the next few months will be relatively simple games because uh, this technology has been in the hands of developers for a few months uh, 
at my old studio Playlab, we usually spend a year to develop one of these uh, bigger mobile titles that are more on the casual freemium side. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yes, the first games, will, the games and experiences app will be a little bit tech demos, advanced tech demos until around, let's say, Christmas or the beginning of 2018. That's when people actually had the technology in their hands. They've thought about ideas. They've put in uh, resources and productions and, and, and time to actually get committed into building uh, bigger games. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first thing is that when people get this in their hand and they figure out what their phone can do, I think they'll be blown away just by seeing these relatively simple games. Uh, but I don't believe that necessarily the stuff that we're working on right now, if we launch that in a year or in two, instead people would think that it's uh, it's too simple. Hmm. Like nobody would be launching a doodle jump for iPhone uh, now, but it worked when it was launched back then. Right. Gotcha. And would it be, you know, are we going to like the full immersive you know, like first-person shooter type games, is that going to be where those games are going? Or, you know, because they're not necessarily the most profitable mobile games, are they? It's kind of the puzzle type games that made most of the money, it seems, at least. All those kind of real-time strategy games. Yeah. What we will see in, uh, I can say that in mobile and gaming in general, uh, era now will be a huge shift towards uh, something new. Uh, So when... I went into gaming, it was when freemium was just kicking off, Candy Crush was launched around that time, mobile devices started to become powerful enough, and then we've been riding this wave for the last five years where uh, of the freemium wave where a few made a ton of money, uh, uh, even more people raised money and invested into games because of the dream of making a lot of money. Mm. Uh, at the moment, like this year, 2017 and, and 18, you will see a lot of these mobile studios simply closing down uh, because the market is getting very competitive on premium games. It's very hard to make a game that is good enough for people to spend enough money so that you can go out and acquire users uh, by uh, by spending by buying uh, users from Facebook, etc. So everybody's looking for what's new in the market. And one of those things are augmented reality, which will, again, see a new wave over the next few years. Uh, we could also be looking into stuff like subscription-based gaming. And I even see a small comeback of, of small premium games coming back uh, because everybody in the industry, from everybody that I know, are a little bit tired of making freemium games that are games you give out for free and then you convince them throughout the game cycle to, to give you money. What's a what's a premium game at the moment in mobile, which would work, which isn't in AR, but which you think would work well? So, so that's the that's where I uh, get into a lot of discussions because uh, there are a lot of the AR demos that you see online right now, where you have taken a a three D isometric type game where you see it from the top uh, and you just project that game on the table. Right. Uh, so it looks good. It's great for demos. Uh, let's say that you can even play Candy Crush on your table, mm. which in, for a video purpose looks amazing. But the the idea of playing Candy Crush on the table is not necessarily better than playing it on your device. Right. And you made a good point there that that would look really good at Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. Exactly. But you know, for the average player on the train in the morning, no. Yeah. No. 
And, and it can maybe work for some marketing campaigns, and we'll see a ton of these games that are implementing AR just because it's cool. Uh, but playing Candy Crush on your table or even playing Candy Crush in VR is not amazing. Mm. It's, it's built for mobile device, and, and that's where it will be. So what we have been looking a lot into is how can we make a game in AR that can only be played in AR. You cannot sit on your couch and play it on the screen alone. A game where you have to walk around and explore objects and interact with them in order for you to uh, complete the game. Mm. Very interesting. You mentioned Moms as an example for augmented reality. I I'm curious if you have an answer. I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I'm going to try. Is, you know, so my mom is 73. She has an iPad mini, and on that is Candy Crush and all that other kind of stuff that that generation yeah. seems to love now, right? I mean, all the puzzle games, and she plays it like crazy. She sits on the sofa and plays that stuff. Yeah. So when... What point and, and what kind of apps will my mum be using augmented reality? So for, for where uh, your mum would be using these experiences are, like, first of all, we need to ensure that the technology is there, that she doesn't have to set up stuff. She doesn't have to uh, put the right lighting settings or be in the right area. The technology just need to work. And, and that's where we are at the start of. Mm. So experiences that she could be uh, working with is, Let's take our everybody's uh, hate for Clippy, which was introduced in Word, <laughs> a small helper on the side that gives you suggestions of what to do. Yeah, uh, and, and let Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you could actually have... Now, I don't remember how old your mom is or how she is. It's, uh, 72, yeah. 72. So that's where you start to have some of the help that you might need to have assistance for. Mm. So you could have a, a small helper for her that is um, anything from remember to take your pills to show, you, show her the direction to the supermarket to what stuff she has to buy mm. uh, to even more nursing solutions where you can have a pet uh, that you can actually play with. It has been medically proven that, especially a lot of the retirement home, having some of these digital uh, pets actually gives people comfort and gets them more relaxed. Mm. Uh, and a lot of this is actually possible for uh, for AR. She can even have, I don't know if you have kids, but uh, show holograms of your kids running around in her living room of last time they were there. Mm. Stuff like that is just really good memories compared to just having a normal photo uh, or a text-based app. That's really interesting. There's something you mentioned, Jakob, a couple of times, and it's something I wouldn't have thought was relevant, but you keep, you've mentioned it twice, and I'm curious to know why. You, you talked about lighting yeah. and the, the setup. I, I wouldn't have thought that was an issue for AR, but so we understand, what, what is the challenge there? So that was the challenge before. Uh, if you wanted to show, so all the AR experiences that you've seen on YouTube the last few years, uh, they have been in a very lit room where they have a sticker on the wall that has some very bright colors that the right. camera can recognize. And it kind of uses that thing to track. Uh, so that's the marker where uh, you can put up a picture, a virtual picture on the wall that is stuck to that marker. And that marker only works if it's, if it's light inside, uh, if you're not moving the camera too much, etc. But in the new technologies, you can go into almost a very dark room and it can still recognize uh, where the floor and where the tables are. Mm. Uh, so it's more about 
people now don't have to go into a production level studio to see these experiences, but they can actually play them around them, whether that being their normal office or their living room. Got it. So it actually works in the wild, so to speak, rather than... Exactly. Right, in this controlled environment, which is, you know, 1% of the cases you'll actually use it in. Exactly. Like when you can give it to kids or uh, or our mothers and they can figure it out, then uh, we have reached peak technology. Right, right. Yeah, I'm fascinated as well about kids because, you know, I mean, I do have a son and I remember when he was just young, the, the first thing he went for was the iPod because there was apps back on it at the time, right? The iPod Touch. And yeah. that just became a thing, and then that you know turned into the iPad, and you just see it all the time. I mean, like kids as young as two using iPads, whether that becomes a thing with like children as well. And, and I wonder if there's any kind of applications there readying for the market aimed at children. I don't know what kind of ages, but whether or not that would be something as well. Yeah. So um, there will be a lot on the on the kids side. There will be a lot of like. I would say every single area is about to be, can't say disrupted, but new technologies will come mm. in. What really happened the last uh, year, especially within both augmented reality or AI machine learning, is that all this software is now ready that we can, with a team of uh, three people, build something that I couldn't have built with 200 engineers last year. Mm. Because we can piggyback on the machine learning uh, libraries, the technologies, also like Core ML that is within iPhone. We can piggyback on the uh, augmented reality that can also just be implemented and use tools that are created by thousands of thousands of engineers at Apple and Google, uh, but made simple enough for us to just implement and persuade our ideas into and create some content on top of these heavy based technologies that makes it useful for uh, kids and everybody else right so also imagine for your son some of the teaching apps uh, instead of having a normal app where an apple comes up and he have to spell apple imagine if he can just run around the house and point the ipad at something mm. and it actually shows him the word apple in in both english and in chinese and how he spells it yeah yeah exactly because you're incorporating play learning with the 3d space as well which is really important i think for especially children and learning that exactly they learn so much through movement as well exactly and and there's some that say it's like oh this is too futuristic that yeah. it won't happen in my lifetime stuff we like we are less than a year away from a lot of this stuff because yeah. uh ar technologies uh ai and ar has now reached a level where we can get it out to consumers uh and it works yeah all right, well, let's back up a little bit because this is an interesting parallel with your history in the mobile space as well. So PlayLab and PageModo, just remind me, which one came first? Was it PlayLab first? Uh, PageModo was first. PageModo first, okay. And Because yeah. you, you said that you got into that space when Freemium was just kicking off. What, what sort of era? When did you start PageModo? So PageMoto, that was before Freemium. That was, uh, that was when Facebook pages just took off. Uh, like all businesses around the world wanted to have their own Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was like an editor for those businesses. Yeah, and this is a template tool for those businesses. Uh, again, pulling my mom into the picture, mm. I could have her creating a Facebook page for her business. That okay. looked good enough. Uh, what year was this? This was uh, 2010, probably. Right. Okay, so you started 2010 PageMoto. 
Yeah, correct. When you started that, and also when you started PlayLab, did you have you, do you see any parallels to where you are with AR now? Because back in 2010, making money out of Facebook was kind of a, a part, you know, there was a lot of apps. They had all those gaming apps that came out, but for everybody else, there wasn't really anything, was there? Yeah. You know, and you're, you're creating a business tool for Facebook. And, you know, businesses really weren't using Facebook, you know, fan pages at any kind of level compared to what they are now. Um, do you see parallels in the way people think about the problems you were trying to solve then? You, do, you know, you're a little bit ahead of the curve, you're a little bit of a risk taker, visionary, whatever. Do, are there any parallels between where you are now and where you are back then? Definitely, uh, because I love new trends and I love new trends that I can see will turn into something big. Uh, I have, uh, I have not had a specific interest in Facebook back then. I have honestly not have a specific interest in games, but when, uh, for example, Facebook grew and all the small businesses grew, there was generated this need in the market, which mm. is where we created uh, PageMoto. Uh, and the same with mobile. When mobile grew heavily and freemium games grew heavily, there's created this need in the market for PlayLab. At the same time of where we are now, we, are, we now have the heavy growth in high-end mobile devices and they're launching new technologies like AR, which is where we then have a spot for Lego Studios. So, how do you I, know? I love... how, how do you know? Well, yeah, I, I can understand you love it, and this is why I want to know: is that how do you know it's something that's going to become big? Because you could back anything, right? You could have, you, know, you could have backed MySpace. You could have backed, I don't know, the mobile space, something like MMS, you know, picture messaging. You know, you could yeah. have. All of these could have become big based on what everybody was saying. So how do you know? The, what tells you that these are going to become big? When I, see, when I see the endless amount of possibilities within it and I see the technology is close enough to get it done, mm. that's when I can go in and bet everything I own in most cases on these uh, successes because everything we look at in the market is based on market trends. And if you can look a few months ahead of another person – you, you have a heavy advantage, whether that being on the stock market or in the startup world. If you can look into what people are going to need in the next few years, uh, then you will jump into it. Then you have to be able to also be careful and avoid a lot of the, uh, I would call it venture capitalist hype, uh, because there are certain uh, times where Venture capitalists are going crazy after finding the next VR game or the next AI startup. And if you just mention the word VR, AI, they will fund you. Uh, and so there are some of these markets where it's very easy to get money, but you can't pay, base a sustainable business on it. And those markets you want to avoid because it doesn't matter if you can raise a lot of money and get on the front page of, of TechCrunch if there won't be a sustainable market for you a year or two later. That's kind of the empty hype. And then you have some of the more underground hype where I would call it AR over VR because AR will be a much bigger industry than VR uh, will be because it's a lot more devices, a lot more people involved into it. And, and when the market size fits with a hype that you can actually see possibilities in, that's when you can go in and bet uh, and put all your eggs in that basket because you're 110% sure it's going to happen. Hmm. Let's talk about putting all your eggs in one basket. Were you, I mean, that's, that's a risk, right? You're a risk taker. You 
I don't think you're risky, which is a little bit different. You take a calculated risk. You can see some information which somebody else can't see. We're talking about seeing a couple of months ahead. Now, that gives you an advantage enough to bet on that market. So you, I want to know about your entrepreneurial background. When did you first actually start what would be called a, a business or a startup or or became an entrepreneur? Is there a point at which your life you say, yep, that's where I started? I can't say the exact point because I have always been, since I was a small kid in school, um, trying to figure out different ways to make business on. Uh, I remember, like the fondest memory I have was a time, this is probably sixth grade, where they were restoring my school and I figured out that they had to throw all the electrical cables out uh, and, and redo all of that. I then had remembered that the, the electrical wires was made out of copper and copper was worth money. <laughs> I can see where so, this is going. Go on. So I, uh, I started taking all these cables from the uh, containers that was, of course, wrapped in uh, like a cable is in plastic and started uh, with a knife cutting off all this plastic to get the copper <laughs> and get the clean copper. All of my friends in class, they thought that they didn't have anything to do to, uh, between classes as well and playing with knives for fun. So I convinced at least a handful of friends for a, a good month straight sitting cutting uh, <laughs> plastic off copper wires. Did you pay them well? And no, they just thought it was uh, fun. No. <laughs> <laughs> they were your first interns, right? I think that was my, yeah, my, I had it together with one of my friends and, and we had a lot of interns, so to say. <laughs> Um, we cut away for a good month and uh, and we managed to sell all this copper. What I haven't realized was how many kilos of copper you need for it to make a, a, a good profitable business. But right. since nobody was paid, it was still a profit <laughs> of, I think, maybe $20 for a month worth of cutting. Well, $20 for a sixth grader is pretty good going, right? <laughs> yeah. So did that give you a taste for it? Were you... I know you did a you, when your your degree was business, right? You, yeah. So you're obviously interested in the business side of things. Did you always have an idea at some point that you were going to start your own company, or did you feel that you were going to do the corporate thing? Were people telling you, yeah. "Well, go, go and work for I don't know, go and work for Misk or something like that for yeah, you know, I, ten years." I, I've never had the doubt of starting my own business. Uh, one of my favorite topics with my dad, which is a, uh, he's a CEO of a bigger company in Denmark. I have since I was being able to speak almost, being able to discuss business with him. Mm. Uh, and I was amazed of how, to, how the business world worked and how you can actually invest into things, how you can build things. So I always knew I wanted my own. Uh, we also, at that time, uh, our neighbor was actually uh, like a famous Danish, Danish internet entrepreneur from the 90s. He had built something in Denmark uh, called uh, UB, which was kind of the Yahoo of Denmark. Hmm. His name was Henrik, and I, I remember getting one of my first jobs at uh, his new company uh, when I was probably 17. So this is after all the study jobs. Like my first real job at his place when I was around 17. By the time I was 18... Uh, Henrik is crazy and, and good guys he is. He was sending me alone on business trips to Asia oh, wow. to close deals. Yeah. Uh, so a few times I had to actually take time off school to go out and, and, <laughs> and, and, and travel. 
to close it, but it really inspired me to both have my own and to build it up. And Where was I, he sending you? Uh, I was in China and Japan and Thailand. And you were 18? Yeah. Have you been to Asia before? Uh, like with my parents once, <laughs> okay. I think. <laughs> right. But when he said, look, Jakob, I want you to get on this plane and go and see this customer in Tokyo. You were like, okay, no problem. Yeah, yeah, of course. That's amazing. And your parents were like, no problem. Yeah, they have always been very understanding in it. Uh, not necessarily understanding in me quitting school and moving right. to Thailand, but uh, they always encouraged me to, to do anything I wanted to. Right, so tell us about that, quitting school and moving to Thailand. What, what was going on in your head at that time? So... Um, I had actually, it was after a, a business trip out here. They wanted to start a new uh, department out here in Thailand. I have never thought about Thailand at all. It had never been on my list of places to move. It was more like a vacation place. Mm. Uh, I was highly inspired by Asia. And this is also like 2009. So things was not going that well in entire Europe. Uh, and things were more booming in Asia, especially uh, China, etc., I always thought it was going to be Japan. I didn't feel like uh, I didn't feel as welcome in Japan, or I didn't feel like people were happy when they left work. Mm. And I'm very much of a both a lifestyle and career-based person, so I need both of those worlds to to be there. I looked at China; that was definitely not a possibility for me. I think it was way too messy. Um, but then on this trip to Thailand, I actually realized that okay, I could live here. Uh, so I went back to Denmark and uh, I then had my job that I had to quit uh, because I wanted to move out here. And I also had school in the evenings uh, for my bachelor that I quit as well. I remember sitting one day in, a, I think it was a class for statistics and just thinking like, screw this, I'm going to move to Thailand. Uh, what, year you, was, what year were you in? College at that the was two thousand nine. What? Sorry, what were you? First year, second year, third year at college? Oh, I was the first. Uh, like, oh, you just end started. Of first semester. End of oh. first semester. <laughs> you didn't even give it a chance. No, it right. was I. It was just not me, and I felt like there were so many possibilities. Like again, looking a few months or years ahead, and I I could go to Thailand and I could see every single type of business here, and I felt like I was able to disrupt it or make mm. it better. Uh, I didn't feel that way in Denmark at the most part because there was very high competition on, on most businesses. They are very professionally driven. Uh, but looking at most of Asia, it was an area where everything was booming like crazy and a lot of the business fundamentals were not there yet. Mm. Uh, so I felt like people always keep calling me a risk taker, but I, I really didn't see it at all as a risk to either move out here or start my own because I, I knew it was going to happen. Right. So for you, the real risk was not making it happen, was, was staying back in Denmark and doing the career thing, right? Yeah, and regretting it for the rest of your life. So when you had that, okay, we'll talk about your, what you actually set up in Thailand in a minute because that's a really interesting story. I, I want to get to that point where you had that conversation with your parents as well. Mom, dad, I'm leaving university and i'm going to asia to start whatever you know start my business how did that go it actually went quite good um like 
quitting school was the biggest thing for my mom, I think. Right. That she was not too happy about that. Right. Uh, I, I did not have uh, a year off where I went traveling like a lot of my friends did. So I think the way I sold this in was a little bit more, hey, instead of traveling the world and spending all my money on with a backpack, I might as well just go to one country and try to start something up. Mm. Uh, so I told her that I would be home for Christmas and I think she expected it to be that, okay, I'll be out for what nine months and then I'll come back home for Christmas. I didn't think she expected that I'll just come home for Christmas to visit. Right. And nine years uh, later, <laughs> you're still yeah. there. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Let's talk about what you did then. So you set up these, at first you said this, uh, Facebook interface, this application for companies to build their Facebook fan page. You built that and sold it or yeah. it was acquired the, the, the very first thing i actually had one company before that uh, that uh, i never got to completing we had started in, in denmark with a friend uh it was kind of a place where you could upload your all your schoolwork and everybody else could buy your schoolwork and of course get inspired by it and you would make a profit so it's kind of like an app store for school assignments mm. Uh, but in the same time, when I moved to, to Thailand, a lot of new and interesting stuff happened. So I never managed to complete it. So you can also call that like my first startup that also failed because I just didn't give it the attention that needed. And then suddenly uh, Page Motor came. But that, that app, for, sorry, that uh, platform for school assignment sounds like a pretty good idea, right? Yeah. It was, you left it, was, it behind. It was very much built for the Danish market, I think. Right, exactly. So, PageMoto, how yeah. long? How long before? So, what's the timeline for that? You started it, and then it was acquired by the company. It was originally, eventually, Vistaprint, right? Is that right? Have I got my details correct? Yeah, uh, Webster were called back then. Webster. So, it actually it was one and a half year. Right. Uh, so, I met my co-founder there, Thomas, uh, and. We build up the site and we have built some very smart, like viral marketing into it where every single one that used the tool would also share it uh, with the rest of their friends. Uh, it was in the glorious Facebook days where you could yeah. basically do every, every marketing trick in the book. Um, so, so, yeah, it, it, it grew up. And, and I remember we had one of our friends from San Francisco in visiting and he was like, remember, you're based in Thailand. Uh, you're never going to be able to raise money and nobody will ever acquire a business. So make sure that you make a business that's profitable. Yeah. Uh, and, and we were like, that sounds fair. Let's do that because there was no, no companies that have ever been acquired out here. There was no investment scene. So we just built a good business where we were planning on actually making a profit. Uh, little did we know that uh, we actually started getting attention from a lot of U.S. companies that – at the day that they contacted us, they didn't care where we were based in the world. Uh, they just liked our product and liked the brand that we had created around it. So I imagine when you set that up, you didn't set it up saying we have to have a top company in Singapore or Hong Kong. You just kind of set it up, right? Or had you already preempted that and set up the structure such that it was easy to acquire by a foreign company? Uh, since we were not planning to ever have this company acquired, that is probably the most messiest company setup I have right. ever done. I imagine, right. Uh, because you have in, in Thailand, the standard is that you can only own 49% of the company as a foreigner, and then you have a local partner in. 
and and this for us has never been a problem because that's just how you do things in Thailand and that's how it worked. Uh, but I clearly remember uh, after at the moment we sold the company and the due diligence started, uh, I had a meeting with American lawyers and they were like, we don't get it. You have sent over your shareholder sheet here and it says that you and Thomas own 49% of the company. Uh, who owns the other 51%? And I was like... Honestly, I don't know. I think maybe it's our lawyer. <laughs> right. It might be some other people. I'm not sure. And they're like, what? You, you, did you just sell as a company that you don't own fully? Uh, and that's actually when it hit me that, okay, next time <laughs> I do something, it needs to be super clean and super nice. Uh, because also talking as that eight, eight years ago, it was not actually possible to set up a BUI yeah. structure or anything else. Uh, but that's what we made sure that when we started PlayLab, that everything was 100% clean, transparent. It was easy to get investment from the outside. It was purely set on the shareholder structure. All work permits were in order, all the legal side, because I did not want to build something that ended up being, uh, how do I say, big and successful and then having these due diligence problems mm. later on. Uh, and same goes for Lego Studios now. Everything is according to the book the way it should be. Uh, I don't want something messy again. Yeah, yeah. Because, yeah. When you set up PlayLab, out of interest, did you set it up with a view now to have it acquired? How did that work? Because you, you've got a track record now. It's going to be a lot easier for you to do that. How does that work? Did you, or did you just say, let's just build what we can and see what happens? Uh, PlayLab was set up in a way that it could get acquired, uh, especially because when I uh, when I entered PlayLab, uh, it was actually I was in as an investor. So it was right before we started PlayLab. Uh, my co-founder, also called Thomas, another Thomas, uh, had a small development team, and we could take over uh, another team of game developers and actually found uh, PlayLab. Right. So. Uh, when we did that, I went in as an investor and also wanted to build up the company where I myself would be reluctant. I wouldn't be needed in the company long term because it needed to work on its own. So everything that PlayLab was built up for, of course, I enjoyed games, but it was also built very much on processes that need to be solid. It need to work without me being there. So we gave a lot of responsibility to the teams. The entire structure is built on, instead of having all decisions from the top, it was based on creative decisions from the teams themselves. Uh, and, and this is a great structure to also get a lot of the creativity out. Uh, it can get a little bit boring in the long term, I mm. figured out, because... Now I suddenly had to only deal with people and processes and yeah. not actually products. Yeah, that's not uh, what your, your thing, your value add is, right? You, you like to be creating stuff. You had 100 people, so I imagine there was a lot of people in process. Were they all based in Thailand? Yeah, based in Thailand. And then uh, the other part, we also for a few years owned a studio in uh, Manila, which mm. had another 50 people. Right, so uh, at one so point you had 150. Exactly. We, we were... 15, 20 people to begin with, and then we launched Juice Cubes, and Juice Cubes just took completely off. Yeah, uh, I think it had generated around $18 million growth so far, mm -hmm. uh, and we are talking about at that time, we had a monthly burn of maybe $30,000. Uh, wow. So suddenly, like, all this crazy growth hit us, and then you, you kind of get uh, into, I can call the TechCrunch vibe, 
where uh, you want to hire as many people as possible because yeah. you want to be the biggest company in town. Right. Uh, and and I, I thought I wanted to do that as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the ego part, though, isn't it? You've got to be careful of when you, you grow these companies. It's like, you know, you can demonstrate growth through how many people are in your office, your headcount, right? And that, yeah. that can be your undoing as well, especially for an entrepreneur like yourself who does so well with the innovation side of things and the creativity side of things and, you know, hustles. To be surrounded yeah. by process, it can be a bit suffocating, right? Because you definitely have these uh, ego measuring tools. I remember my first trips to uh, San Francisco, um, what is that, yeah, seven years ago or so, where we were talking to people and it's like, how's your business doing? And they're like, great, we just raised our Series A. Yeah. And and, and for us, that was so strange because that was back in Motor. We have never raised money. It was more about how good is your revenue, how good is your profit? We came to San Francisco and suddenly the measurement bar was how much money did you raise yeah. and when, when did you raise it? Then when Thailand came, it was a little bit more measurement bar of, of how many people do you have that shows you success because investment was not here yet. Exactly. Uh, and you as an entrepreneur sometimes get misguided by these yeah, egoistic decisions that either want to make your company look uh, bigger or better. So when you are in the entrepreneur club that you will get a lot of claps on your back. Mm. Uh, and 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 that will take you some quite some time to figure out exactly what you want to do and who you want to be if you are a product guy that just loves building products that being games or any other product or if you are a process guy that loves running a big company uh like i would i would hate to be head of google or apple or something thailand because it's just or worldwide, it's, it's just a lot of processes. I like products. Exactly, but you're in a good position now where you can actually choose, right? I mean, you've you've learned that. You you, like you said, you, you know, you felt you could have learned so much more by going out and learning your own mistakes than sitting in a classroom for three years, right? And you've kind of, in that process, you've discovered what you are, who you are, right, and what exactly. kind of entrepreneur you are, because there are many different types of entrepreneurs as well, right? And that's important to understand that there are many different stories and ways of becoming an entrepreneur. And some entrepreneurs are, are great in front of people. Some people are great at making things. Some people are great at building huge organizations and so on. And we have to understand which type we are so we can follow the stories of people who are ahead of us, right? Rather than the wrong one. And in a way, that's kind of what you've learned yourself, you know, by going yeah. out to play and, and almost being away from Silicon Valley. Has helped very you. yeah very very true i i love uh like i'm at i'm in silicon valley at least a few times a year uh, i was there two weeks ago i love tapping in seeing all the ideas that are happening and all the hype and leaving again and using some of that knowledge and hype to actually build what i call real products right uh, but biggest part of my entrepreneurial life has been figuring out what i don't want to do the rest of my life Mm-hmm. Uh, because once you narrow that down, you also figure out, okay, this is my weakness. I could actually go on a three-month course at Stanford and learn this one specific thing instead of spending uh, three years at university in Denmark learning a lot of different things where I'm only going to use 10, 20% of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's inspiring, you know. What you teach through your story to other entrepreneurs as well, I think it's great because you didn't – finished university 
And I imagine there are people who, like yourself, are probably feeling the kind of things that you felt back then. And maybe they, they haven't put a name on it yet. Maybe that they're in that situation and they're thinking, there's something not right here. I need to do something. It, you know, when you look at people in that situation, or maybe even considering going to college, and they, they're yeah. sort of thinking, I don't know if this is right for me. Is there, a, it's a difficult question to ask, but is there an easy answer to that? You know, because you've been through a lot, you've experienced a lot, you've had success, you've had failures as well, which is great. That's your learning curve, right? You know, when you look at somebody in that situation, 17, 18, what do they need to do? It, you know, do they, should they go to college, get the grades, and then go and experience something? So they get mentorship, should they start their own business? Is there a simple answer to this? How would you, if somebody came to you and said, hey, look, I want to do what you did, Jacob, what's the first thing I can do? Like, uh, of course, everyone is different, and I'm, I'm not an anti-school guy in any way. But it's up to you to figure out, do I believe enough in it? And do I have the curiosity to actually learn about stuff that I do not know about? Because there are people that go to school and they learn stuff and that is everything they ever had. And then they base their job on it. Yeah. Uh, I have always been very, I call it passionately curious from an Einstein quote. Uh, that I, I just loved everything I did not understand. And I could spend hours and days figuring out how it worked. Uh, and if you have that curiosity, I think you can jump into any industry whatsoever. You will burn your hands a lot of times. Uh, yeah. And it's the most, it's much more expensive to start your own company than to take an MBA. Uh, but you will learn it in practical terms of how it works. Yeah, for sure. Best stuff if you're in school or even have a job. I don't see, I see that as a very much the same thing. But being able to start something on the side and at least being able to test off, is this something I like or not? Uh, because there are no right or wrong answer. It's more about where do I feel most comfortable. And for me, uh, it's extremely risky. And I've been telling my dad that a lot. He doesn't agree <laughs> because he just had 40-year-old anniversary in his company. For me, it's super risky to have a job because you are putting your faith in somebody else's um, hands. And he's worked for a company 40 years. Of course, he can have a great golden parachute, but he can basically be out of a job in a month. Right. Exactly. Uh, where at least he thinks that what I'm doing is very risky because I'm, I'm betting everything I have on a company, but at least it's in my own control. Yeah. Uh, yeah different generations, though. They're different, different experiences and different, you know, not motivations, but different priorities. And yeah. I think, you know, it's changed and it takes a few stories like yours to be shared so people can understand what the options are. I like as well, you said um, earlier on about your story with Henrik, was it? The internet guy from UB? Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, that that for me is the missing part, missing link in your story is that, yes, you did drop out of college, but you didn't do that completely from zero. You had some kind of mentorship in a way, For sure. you know, which sure. I think that's a great way to get started. You talk about somebody doing something on the side as a way of getting started. And that is a great start. You know, don't jump in straight into the deep end, do it on the side or go and work. If you can't start a startup, go and work for a startup. Right? Exactly. Get, get surrounded. The key is to surround yourself with these people, isn't it? Yeah. You know, and, and learn how they think and you know, pick up on the way to do things. And that's kind of what you experienced early on, which gave you the confidence to go out and do that. 
and it's also sometimes just about t- taking the risk and learning where you want to be. I have a good friend that are planning to move to Thailand, uh, mm-hmm. been successful starting different companies up, and he's like, can I just have an internship at one of these startups so I can figure out how Thailand ecosystem yeah. works, I can get to know the right people. Uh, and, and, and I think that's the best approach to doing stuff, just going out, offering yourself for free. And if people don't want to hire you, do the job anyway and just show them because like that just shows commitment to what you're doing. Uh, and you can so much easier to other people that had some, some of those experience you want to have, learn them in a much shorter time than they did. Exactly. That, that's fantastic advice. Great thing to end on as well. That's Jakob Lukogard, everybody. He is the founder of Lika Studios, and I'm sure you're going to be hearing more about these guys as well, because AR, well, in the next few weeks, we will understand where we are with that scene. There's going to be a lot of things coming out. I know we're recording this before. There's going to be some big announcements. So by the time that you hear this, there already will be bigger announcements in the market. So keep an eye on that and Liquor Studios as well. Jakob, before you go, I want you to share with us um, some links so we can come find out more about you. I mean, for a couple of reasons. One, to find out more about Liquor Studios, obviously. But also, like you mentioned, look, you know, if you want to get into this space, if you want to become an entrepreneur, if you want to go and experience what it's like, you know, the best thing is to reach out to people like Jakob, who will be, I'm sure you'd be happy to bring these people on. You know, if somebody wanted to come and intern with you and just kind of understudy with you, you know, they should get in touch with somebody like, you know, the best people to do this with is people who have done what you're trying to achieve, right? So how can we get in contact with you? Give us a couple of links where we can reach out to you. For sure. I, I definitely think the best way is still LinkedIn at the moment yep. because our uh, website, the, the real one, will get up in a few weeks. The current one is very uh, sloppy. Right. Uh, but otherwise, there's LinkedIn. always hello at legostudios.com. Excellent. And we'll put all the LinkedIn details in the show notes. Yeah. Jakob, thank you so much for coming onto the show, onto Asia Tech Podcast and sharing your story with us. It's been really inspirational. And thank you very much, Graham, for having me. Yeah, really enjoyable as well. And, you know, I really, I feel like we could have gone on much longer and talked because there's so much more, you know, in terms of that story that we could talk about. So I would like to do a part two at some point. I know, like you said, there's stuff coming out. So, you know, let, let's sort of think about in the future coming back on and getting an update on your journey and where you are with that. Definitely. There is a lot more that I can share in a few weeks uh, because everything is happening like right now in the AR space. Uh, you have all the giants fighting with each other and it will show to it. Will, it looks like it's going to be a great Christmas. <laughs> Fantastic. Jakob, thank you very much. Thank you, Graham. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.